John 6, 28. Then they said to him, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they, all, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give, his, give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Amen.
In 2008, newly married and looking to lose a few pounds, I bought the then new book, Eat This, Not That. The book's premise is a good one. We all know that food cravings can be very powerful and very specific. Just ask a pregnant woman. When I want to eat the whole bag of salty, tangy potato chips, a plate of boiled yellow squash will probably not appeal or satisfy my craving. Eat this, not that. At the time, didn't even have recipes. They didn't try to give you a list of healthy foods. All it did was suggest substitutions. Whatever restaurant or grocery store that you were going to, whatever flavor profile you had in mind, it would suggest an alternative. Probably not good for you, but with a noticeable difference in calories, fat, carbs, or salt content. And that way, you could get your craving satisfied, but hopefully by something even just slightly less bad for you than what you had set out to eat. It's a plan that acknowledges, hey, you want what you want, but maybe there's something just a little better to satisfy that craving. When it comes to food and drink, Jesus has been teaching about two kinds. One kind can temporarily satisfy the body. And that doesn't make it bad. It keeps us alive. I like to eat. Food comes as a good gift from God. But that food is extremely limited in its capability. Despite my hyperbole after my favorite meals, food doesn't really make life worth living. That food doesn't give life meaning or purpose or hope. For this, we need spiritual food and drink. Jesus has used this metaphor several times now, even as he continues to address people's physical needs at the same time. But when talking about food and drink, he meets their needs and he points people back to their real need, the only thing that will ever truly satisfy the soul himself. He is the spiritual food that we need. There is no substitution. In the lead-up to this morning's passage, he just told the crowds not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And the crowds, doing what they do, misunderstand. Jesus is trying to realign their priorities. He's trying to challenge their perspective on what we really need, on what it is we're lacking. Once we understand what we really need, we'll see that only he can provide it. But the crowds instead hear a challenge to do more or different work for God. They hear Jesus speak and they never for a moment doubt that what is required is something more or something different from them. And they never doubt that they have the ability to provide it, to do it. That error is about as old as time. It's certainly as old as fallen humanity. Since the fall, we have an intrinsic sense of our brokenness. We know that something is off. We observe our lives and on self-reflection, we see that they're filled with things that cannot please God. And even when a a supposedly non-religious person, when they, through whatever means, come to accept that 
an offended universe, an offended God is at the root of their hunger, they always end up at the most important question. How do I fix it? How am I reconciled to that God, whoever they are? How do I get in God's good graces again? How do I fix the problem? That question of human hearts is what the crowd asks in verse 28. What must we do? To be doing the works of God. To win the favor of God to be reconciled to God, to have hope for a secure future, to satisfy this craving of my heart, what must I do? That's their question. And where Jesus begins is telling. He answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The answer is simple, though unexpected. And for some, the answer is offensive in this crowd and in the world today. Most in this crowd already believe in God. Many consider themselves to be deeply devoted followers of God. And yet what Jesus tells them is what they need in order to please God is not something that comes from them, but something that comes from God. He's asking them to be devoted to him. Now, just what level of devotion and honor is Jesus asking for? Does he want us to revere him like Moses? This crowd loves to follow Moses. And they said or assumed that Jesus is claiming to be the the scriptural prophet like Moses who is to come. But if Jesus wants that level of honor, he'll have to earn it. After all, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness because Moses gave them the bread to eat. Jesus may have just fed 5,000 from a couple of loaves and some fishes, but Moses fed all of God's people by bringing down bread from heaven. Moses' level stature requires Moses' level signs. And so they say, what sign do you do that we may see And believe you. And what Jesus points out is that they've missed the point as much with Moses as they are missing the point with him. Moses didn't give bread, God gave bread through Moses. And the bread that he gave them then was that first category of bread, good for the stomach, but useless for the soul, as you see if you read Exodus. Jesus' conclusion in verse 33 is, I think, the key to this whole chapter. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. An excellent New Testament scholar identifies three critical points from this verse that help us understand the whole passage. First, Jesus does not only provide the true bread, he is the true bread. Second, this bread is not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, all who will believe. And third, God has revealed this bread to us, which is his self-revelation in Christ. That's what the bread is. God's self-revelation in Christ. 
It's easy for us to read this passage and mentally jump right to the Lord's Supper. After all, Jesus is talking about being bread and believers eating his flesh. But you've got to see that the connection runs the other direction. It's not that this passage is an exposition of the supper. It's because Jesus is the true bread that the sacrament God gave reflects the truths that are taught here. That's not the real bread. He is. In verse 34, the people claim to want this bread that Jesus offers. That leads Jesus to explain what he means in more detail. And he does this in two segments. The first is verses 35 through 48. And that segment begins and ends with the phrase, I am the bread of life. But that segment actually uses very little metaphorical language about bread. It's the more literal explanation of what Jesus means. And then the second segment, verses 49 through 58, leans into the bread metaphor heavily. That structure is designed by Jesus to help us understand how we should and should not interpret the metaphor. Jesus as bread is the thematically dominant part of this passage. But Jesus says all this in a way that's designed to prevent us from stretching the metaphor too far, lest we miss the point the way the crowd did. You can see the boundaries of the metaphor if you look very closely at Jesus' words. One pastor writes, look carefully. Jesus is the bread of life, but it is the person who comes to him who does not hunger, not the person who eats him. Similarly, it is the person who believes in him who does not thirst, not the person who drinks him. The first portion of Jesus' response establishes the meaning and the boundaries of this metaphor so that by the time we get to the second part, and the language is pretty intense metaphorically, we're able to understand it rightly. Receiving and believing God's self-revelation in Christ is the eating and drinking Jesus is talking about here. Eternal life has nothing to do with physical elements we eat or drink, even at this table. What God teaches us through the giving and receiving of the word is the spiritual priority. And that's not to minimize the Lord's Supper, but it is to acknowledge that the usefulness of the Supper only comes because it is connected to what God has already taught us in his self-revelation. The supper, apart from the teaching, has no spiritual value. The crowd can only think of salvation in terms of the tangible stuff, the works, the acts, the rituals they can perform. Jesus tells them that he gives the bread they need. And what's their response? Give us this bread always. As if to say, we will do this again and again. Take and eat this bread from you. We will keep doing that work. They've missed it. And that's why Jesus says in verse 35 that those who eat this bread don't need more bread. 
They come to him for spiritual satisfaction and they never hunger again. What Jesus offers needs no substitution and it needs no supplement. It is completely effective. There's a great parallel here to Jesus' interaction with Peter in chapter 13. Jesus insists that to abide with him, you must be washed by him. And remember how Peter responds. He says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. But do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Our works as a path to reconciliation with God never satisfy. That's why honest introspection, if we really think about it and we believe God needs our good works to save us, we have to admit again and again that what we've done so far isn't enough. It isn't adequate for the task. And no matter how good people think we are, we know deep down we have to keep doing more and more and more. And that's true even of very good works. It's also true even of professions of faith. Because if we aren't careful, we can also view those as a saving work. If our own profession of faith, that we said words, that we prayed a prayer, if that's where we look for assurance of salvation, we're going to have to keep coming back for more and more spiritual bread. We're going to ask later, was I sincere enough when I said it? Did I know enough about the things I was claiming to believe? And if I believed it, why did I go back to sinning? There is no bread you will ever make that will be an effective substitute for a secure soul. It won't happen. There's nothing wrong with eating manna from heaven. But if we're trying to use that bread to satisfy our souls, we're eating the wrong thing. Because the only soul-satisfying bread is to see and believe that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. To understand by faith that he came down from heaven to make atonement for sin and to reconcile us with God. Verse 36, this crowd has seen Jesus, but they have not believed. Because what they think they've seen is a miracle work. They hope they've seen a political liberator. What they have not seen is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. They have not seen the word who was in the beginning with God and who is God. An astute observer wrote, the crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused. Not faith. What, though, does that say about Jesus' ministry? If he is the supreme revelation of God, and he's ministering to people who don't see it, is his ministry a failure? How can it be that these people encounter God's perfect and complete revelation and yet do not believe? If not in the response that people give, how else can we judge the success of a ministry? And how can the one who ministers be confident that his work has God's favor except by seeing people believe in God? 
In verses 37 to 40, Jesus has a lot to say about how to be confident in your work and how to measure the success of ministry. It's through confidence in your relationship with his father, he says, and not by the responses of the crowds. His father has his own specific purposes, the father's will, which the son came to work. His father has his own purposes, to save and whom to save. And regardless of how the crowds respond, Jesus' confidence is unshakable so long as he is working toward the Father's purposes. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me. Verse 38, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. Jesus, by doing the work and will of his Father, will draw to himself all whom the Father has given to him. And by doing that work, he will persevere them all to the day of resurrection and that day of eternal life. We get to see an immediate partial fulfillment of this promise with the disciples themselves. If you think about it, they're a microcosm of the church. The Father gave them to Jesus, minus Judas, who Jesus knew to be a false sheep. Jesus called them out of the world and to himself. Jesus persevered them in faith. And then in John 17, we read what he prays to the Father about them. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. That initial fulfillment among the disciples will give way to the larger fulfillment that comes through the church. And we'll read more about that when we get to chapter 10 and then again to chapter 17. But the pattern is the same. The father appoints lost, rebellious, sinful people. That's what he calls sheep. The father appoints lost, rebellious, sinful people to his son. His son, the perfect revelation of God, reveals God to those people. They see God through the Son and trust in God. Their souls are satisfied once and for all because he has offered the bread that fully satisfies. And then they are kept safely in his hand through the day of judgment and into eternity with God. Now for all this to be true, Jesus must continue to claim equality with God. And every time he does that, it sparks some controversy. In Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders were outraged that Anyone would say something equating themselves with God. No matter who said it, that's blasphemy. But here in Galilee, the outrage is even more pointed because it isn't just anyone who said it. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the guy they know. Verse 42, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They believe someone can come down from heaven, just not Jesus, the one that they know. They know Jesus. They know Mary, his mother. They knew his father, Joseph. What else could they need to know to be sure that this guy isn't God? Yet... And I admit I put this quote in here because it made me laugh. It will, it will transpire that Jesus knows their father far better than they know his. I like it. Again and again, people try to bring the attention back to people. That's what we do. When we talk about God and we talk about salvation, people try to bring the attention back to people. And when you do that, you take the attention away 
from God's grace. Our works, this crowd's assessment of the situation, they've reasoned through it. Me, me, me. They think that they have everything they need within them to discern the truth of God and to follow him rightly. But that is completely contradictory to what Jesus was just saying. Verse 32, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Verse 40, I will raise him up on the last day. And he continues that thread here. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. One professor concludes, so long as man remains confident in his own ability, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe only the father can move him to this step. Much to the dismay of the I chose God first crowd, Jesus here allows for no such thing. Verses 37 and 44 together make clear that while there is a general call to faith that goes out into the world, it is only the selective, directed working of God's grace that draws people to Christ in saving faith. Jesus says it's the work of God's grace alone that makes the difference between those who gladly and freely maintain their rebellion against God, which they're happy to do, and those who hear the voice of Jesus and believe. Differences of ethnicity, gender, wealth, even wisdom or sincerity, these matter not at all. Many in this crowd are willing to do a great deal of work for the bread that will satisfy their souls. What they are not willing to do is to believe in Christ and receive him as the only bread that will ever satisfy. That this drawing is not based on earthly man-made distinctions is itself a great expression of grace. Some people want to be mad at God that this could be true, but it is incredibly gracious. It's why in John 12, it can be said that God desires for all men without distinction to be saved. Men, women, adults, children, Jews, Gentile, rich, poor, educated, ignorant, all without distinction to any difference you can imagine. All are among those God draws. But given what Jesus says here, What those words cannot mean is that God's saving grace goes out to all people without exception. As if his saving grace, drawing people to Jesus, is given to all, but only effective in some. When you ask what's the difference between those who believe and those who do not, Jesus says it is only the Father's drawing and not anything we do or create or offer ourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him this passage also tells us something about how how god expresses this saving grace and it picks up the thread from before And the Christian church at large today does not like this thread because it's the word of God as sufficient. Verse 45, Jesus is alluding to Isaiah, I think chapter 54 here, forgot to write it down. 
He says, and they will all be taught by God. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Later in John 14 and 16, when Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, how does he describe the Holy Spirit? He says, I'll send you the spirit of truth who will teach you all things. People think that God revealing himself would be some sort of mystical, almost anti-intellectual experience. Yet when Jesus describes it here, he describes it as God teaching us, us learning from God's revelation. It's important to get this right, so let me quote a better New Testament scholar than I am. It's Don Carson, if you're wondering. God teaching you does not mean that a person may enjoy direct, personal, mystical knowledge of him apart from the revelation that has been given in Jesus. Jesus says here why. Only Jesus has seen the Father. Only of Jesus. He says no one has seen God except the one who is from God. Jesus is the only mediator of such knowledge. He's the one who narrates God. Thus, you are taught by God if and only if you truly hear Jesus. And that's what the bread metaphor means. It's why this section starts and ends with the bookends, I am the bread of life. Everything Jesus has been saying since verse 35 has been an explanation of that phrase. The bread of life is God's self-revelation through Jesus Christ. It's expressed in this table, yes, but it begins with the revelation, with the words, the knowledge, the teaching that comes from God to people as he shows them Christ. to say as a quick aside and kids don't miss this so you don't misunderstand me this morning you can also look at passages like this and pay attention to how much Jesus also emphasizes our responsibility to come to him in faith God gives faith and we must exercise the faith that he gives if we're going to stand with him on the day of judgment I always think that Abraham is such a great example because like all of us, God gave Abraham faith when he wasn't looking for it. And Abraham then used that faith in pretty tangible and dramatic ways. We got some pretty amazing Abraham exercises faith stories and God says his faith was counted to him as righteousness. God gave him faith. Faith. He gives us faith, the knowledge of himself through the perfect revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he commands us to take hold of that faith and to live in that faith by walking with Christ. You ought to be able to see it. I think one of the discouraging things for pastors today, first in our own lives, and then of members of the Christian church more broadly, is how rare it is to see someone's life look dramatically different from the world's. The people who have eaten this spiritual food should have lives that are noticeably different 
from those who have not. And many times I'm not sure that's the case. Our lives should be lived with confidence that Christ will keep us in faith through the day of judgment and into eternity. And that confidence should change everything. In verses 49 through 58, Jesus takes the I am the bread of life, which we now understand rightly, and he extends the bread metaphor dramatically. This challenges his hearers even more. If they struggled to accept the last explanation, they're really going to choke on this one. No credit for the pun? Come on, people. His first explanation was difficult to unbelieving ears. By the end of this one, he's telling them they have to feed on his flesh and drink his blood. How do you think that's going to go? And so, as expected, they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Without the help of the Spirit, they can't separate the spiritual meaning from the physical metaphor. They're not hearing his words by faith because they haven't been given ears to hear. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to dig into the details of this second explanation. It agrees with the first. But there is one verse I want to draw your attention to, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. I draw attention to that because that word abides is an important one in John's gospel. And the way he uses it here should be incredibly encouraging and comforting to us. Abide is the word that John uses to explain the relationship that exists within the Trinity. And here, it's the word that he uses to describe the relationship that exists between Christ and his followers. According to Jesus, this abiding relationship is what we gain by faith in him. By grace, God reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. By faith, which he gives, we take hold and we believe in Christ, eating the flesh of the bread that we're offered. And as a glorious result, we abide in him and he abides in us. In us. What that means is that you can go out from here today, you can go back into that world abiding in Him. You've eaten this spiritual bread. You can be different. And that difference is at the heart of the church's calling. It's abiding in Him that we worship in truth, using the Word of God to shape and direct our worship. And we grow by grace as we study the word of God individually and collectively and we seek daily to apply what it teaches in every sphere of life. And we live as disciples, showing others the love of God in the way that we live and in the ways that we love. We abide in him even when we leave here and go out there. And praise God, You can go out from here today in the confident assurance that he also abides with you. Do you understand what that means? Christ, the second person of the Trinity, identifies himself with you. He grants us his protecting, encouraging, and life-giving presence through the Spirit 
He says to everyone who would accuse you, this child is mine. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, do you know what I tell Satan? Christ abides in me. And one with himself, I cannot die. With Christ, my Savior, and my God. Amen.